The following podcast contains explicit language. If you haven't listened to White Boy Rick Chapter 1 yet, I suggest you start from there. Everything will make a lot more sense if you listen from the beginning. How did you guys decide where to meet? What were you guys, how'd that work out? Yeah, I would meet with them at different locations. We would meet on the roof of Kobo or at a restaurant in Kobo or, you know, sometimes I'd jump in a van and talk to them. He's number one. What do you say? Dad! Yeah. yeah, that was good. What? Get to work. Get to work. Tell him. All right, let's go. time. We're up in Michigan's Thumb area, about 90 minutes from Detroit. You can go out on the porch and listen to the crickets and the frogs here. You know, see the deer going by. We're at Jimmy Locklear's house. He's a good friend of Rick's. Yeah, so this is it. Beautiful. Jimmy's got three acres, four goats, two dogs, a cat. He's 53 years old. Jimmy grew up in Rick Wershey's neighborhood, back on the east side of Detroit. He remains one of Rick's best friends. Oh, we talk every day. He calls me every day. When Jimmy was 16, he dated Rick's older sister, Dawn. She was pretty smoking hot, you know what I mean? And, uh... She seemed like she had her head on right, you know, and all that type of stuff, so. But, like teenagers do, they broke up after a little while. She was like, uh, I would say more mature than me. But Jimmy and Rick, they remained friends. Well, to be honest with you, I thought he was a smart kid, man. You know, he was street, street smart, a lot smarter than me. Just all around cool kid, you know. I mean, he could take a bicycle. And, and buy it, you know, for seven dollars, and turn around and sell it for ten, and make three dollars. I wondered, when Rick became an informant at the age of fourteen, did his friend Jimmy have any idea what was going on? I had no clue. I didn't find out till years later. Knowing Rick, you think he'd be good at that job, though? What? Being an informant? <laughs> yeah, he was real good at it. <laughs> Here you got big-time drug dealers, and, he, and they took him right under, right under their wing. Imagine that. 14 years old, keeping a secret that could get you killed. Getting paid by the feds to learn as much as you can about the neighborhood drug empire. Shit, the feds were paying them, and they were paying them big money. I'm sure I would have done the same thing. I mean, you're growing up on, uh, you know, uh, powdered milk, uh, block cheese, powdered eggs, and, and, and you get the money from them and you can eat steak. I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people would do the same thing. I think I was too stupid, to be honest with you, too, too stupid to be scared sometimes. I mean, again, I was a child. From WDIV and Grand Media, this is Shattered, the White Boy Rick Story, Chapter 2. Summer job. Uh, my name is Herman B. Groman Jr. I'm a retired FBI special agent. I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. I was the uh, case agent on the Curry drug investigation. Groman says he didn't recruit Rick and his dad to be informants. That was done by one of his colleagues. But he started collecting information from the Wershies in 1984. He says his first time meeting them was at a McDonald's on Detroit's west side. 
I think it was on Livernoy Avenue. And I was kind of startled uh, when I walked into the uh, McDonald's and I saw uh, Wershey Sr. sitting there with this young kid. Uh, after introductions were made, I began uh, quizzing uh, the father about specifics about the Curry Drug Organization. And I noticed that at times he would defer to uh, the kid. And as you sat there in the McDonald's, was there anything that you noticed about him, his personality, uh, you know, why he might be successful at this or why, how, how this young kid might know this kind of stuff? Yeah, well, you know, the first thing I noticed about the kid uh, was he spoke with a uh, very distinct uh, black dialect. And then um, it seemed to me that, uh, number one, he was very polite, and number two, uh, he was very knowledgeable about um, who the main players were and uh, what they drove and uh, what their activities were and where they went at night and who they hung out with. Um, so I, you know, I, I uh, was impressed with the uh, deepness of his knowledge of the, of the operation. I'm holding a document dated July 24, 1984. It requests a $300 payment for the source. It says the source personally observed a $64,000 drug transaction and is willing to go participate in drug buys. What it doesn't say is that the source is a 14-year-old kid. The name of the source is Jem. Sources are given nicknames so that people never find out who they really are. Jem, according to the official file, was Richard Wershey Sr., a gun dealer from Detroit. What was really happening, though, is these same FBI agents and Detroit police officers who wanted information from Rick's dad, they were actually getting information from Rick Jr. But they were filing all the payments under his dad's name. And I do recall the, the father was extremely uh, money-hungry. I mean, always whining about uh, getting paid and so forth. And uh, I found his personality to, to be abrasive. And what about Rick's personality? Uh, he seemed like a nice kid, uh, misdirected, uh, seemed smart. You know, and I, uh, I remember thinking to myself, you know, if he weren't in the environment that he were in, I could probably grow up to be a normal kid. It's, it's easy for me to understand why the uh, task force would want to use Richard Worshey Sr. as a informant. Uh, he's an adult and he may know some things about what's going on. Um, but what do you think about the idea of the task force using the kid as an informant? Well, see, now what you're doing is you're using today's mores to try to explain or to put a light on what happened in the 80s. You can't do that. It's not now. It's back in the 80s. That's retired FBI agent Greg Schwartz. He, like Groman, was one of several FBI agents tasked with getting info from Rick back in the 80s. In today's world, oh, everybody would frown on that. But I got to tell you, it still happens. There aren't any rules or regulations about how old an informant or source needs to be. Uh, I talked to a couple special agents in charge and said, you know, we, we did this and we did that. And he goes, yeah, so what? So what? doesn't cut it for Rick's sister Dawn. As a parent now, I never would have had it. My 14-year-old kid? Are you kidding me? No. It's, uh, I almost lost my life. You know, it, it's, to be honest, I wonder 
how anyone could expose a child to that. You know, like, it's something I would never bring a kid into, that life. Like it or not, 14-year-old Rick Worshey Jr. was now an informant. He was reporting to FBI agents and Detroit police officers, all of whom were part of the Federal Drug Task Force. Unfortunately, we were turned down for interviews with all of the Detroit cops Rick worked for. But the FBI confirms his story. Lots of young kids want to have an idea of becoming a cop or a police officer when they get older, a fireman, something like that. Um, you know, when when you were doing this informant thing, did you kind of feel like you were a cop or did you have any aspirations to be a cop or anything like that? Was there any of that? Yeah, it, it was something like that. I felt I was helping them and doing some good. and But the more I got to know them and the more that I saw there wasn't as much good as I thought it was. You know what I mean? There there was some underhanded things going on. There was some stealing going on. The more I, the longer I was in it, the more my eyes were open to the reality of what really goes on in law enforcement. In some law enforcement, not all of them are bad. To get paid, he needed to provide solid information on all of the drug dealers in the neighborhood. In Rick's neighborhood, that was the Curry organization, made up of a dozen family members and a handful of associates. At the top of their organization was big man Leo Curry and his twin brother, little man Johnny Curry. Their younger brother is Boo Curry, and Boo and Rick already happened to be friends. We would go play basketball at the rec center. We would hang out. It didn't start out as in any criminal way or anything like that. He, he was my friend. Me and him were super close. Did the feds get excited about that? I don't know if they were excited about that because Boo was never really the target. It was Big Man and Little Man that were the target. After the break, Johnny Little Man Curry. Somebody said it's hot out here today, baby. On an uncomfortably hot Saturday afternoon in June, we're invited to a massive neighborhood block party on the east side of Detroit. We're there to meet Johnny Curry. This is where we went to school at and kind of grew up in this neighborhood. <laughs> Today, he's almost 60 years old. He says his drug dealing days are far behind him. He's wearing red leather sandals, a gold chain around his neck, ornate Louis Vuitton glasses. By the time we start the interview, there are about 20 people watching. His daughter, his nephew, his old friends from the neighborhood. We're here because we want to figure out how Rick Worshi made his way into the Curry family. He wasn't really, he was close with my brother, I'll say, boo. He wasn't that tight in my organization there. He was close, but not that close in my organization. I let nobody get too close to me that wasn't really family. You never suspected that he was meeting no. with police. You know what? I didn't suspect that he was meeting with police, and I never expected that because he was so young. I didn't think. Although Johnny says he never let Rick get too close, they did spend a lot of time together. Like I say, we had all got motorcycles together, rode up to see my brother that was in prison in Jackson. We uh, we had a lot of little fun together, times like that. We'd go to Skateland, we'd go to Belle Isle, we'd go to nightclubs, we'd go to Somerset Mall, we'd go shopping at Northland. You know, we. We go to the state fair. We hung out as a crew. How did you balance in your head or your heart getting information on the Currys when you're also kind of friends with the Currys? 
that's a difficult question because, I mean, I considered Boo my friend, but there were times when, you know, it was the street life and people did underhanded things. And, you know, sometimes you felt bad and sometimes you didn't. There, you know, there, people talk about loyalty in the streets and loyalty to the streets, and there's really no such thing for anyone who's ever really been in that street life. There's no such thing as loyalty. That everyone along the way screws someone over or, or, you know, does something underhanded. Money, money changes people for the worst. And in, and in the street life, you know, guys who you think are your friends, listen, I had, I knew people that, their friends murdered them over stuff in the streets. You know, it, it was it was part of that street life. And I had people that I thought were my friends that stole little stupid things like a piece of jewelry or, or lied about things. And it, it just, I'm not proud of anything I did by any means. Once or twice a week, an agent from the task force would stop by for information. Sometimes they acted on it. If it was good info... Richard Worsey Sr. got paid. It's documented in the reports that I've obtained, but never anywhere is it documented that the information is really coming from teenager Rick Worsey Jr. How did you guys decide where to meet? What were you guys, how'd that work out? Yeah, I would meet with them at different locations. We would meet on the roof of Kobo or at a restaurant in Kobo. FBI agent Herm Groman says, Uh, We met at uh, the Detroit uh, Institute of Art a couple of times where we knew that, you know, some of these people that they'd be reporting on wouldn't be likely to show up. And um, depending on what the agenda was, uh, we'd sit down and uh, typically I would say uh, most meetings lasted about uh, an hour, a uh, half an hour. You know, sometimes I'd jump in a van and talk to them. It, it didn't really matter where we met. I mean, hell, they, they were meeting guys at the, at the big boys on, on Grand Boulevard in Jefferson. You can't get more in the neighborhood than that. Being so young, though, um, and maybe the way I look at, you know, a 14, 15-year-old is different than what being a 14, 15-year-old was for you. But, I mean, I look at someone your age living a double life like that and just being completely stressed out or panicked. Oh, it was, listen, it was stressful. I'm not going to tell you it wasn't. There, There was, you know... You, you always keep in mind, like you said, you're a 14 or 15-year-old kid, and you have to be conscious never to slip. I mean, one wrong word, one wrong, you know, thing, and you put your life in danger. Did your dad have to tell you how dangerous it would be to tell someone that you guys were informants, or did you just oh, no, know? I knew. Trust me, I, I, I knew all about what happens to an informant in, in that world. What What happens? If the right people find out, you're going to be murdered. A lot of times there were people down there that that people thought were an informant and they were murdered. Just for, even if they were wrong, just to be safe. So even at 14, 15 years old, you knew how serious this was. Yeah, plus you got that out of Scarface too. There was a scene in Scarface where they kind of threw the guy out of the helicopter for being an informant. I don't know if you remember that, but kind of at something in your brain that it's something you never want to learn. All I have in this world is my balls and my word, and I don't break them for no one. You understand? 
Rick Wershey's rise was lightning fast. In less than a year, he goes from an unknown 14-year-old who likes baseball and riding his bike to a 15-year-old who all the drug dealers accept as legit. I mean, it, it, it's not easy as you just pick up and sell drugs. You know, they they took me to houses and told me to go in and what to say. And I, I wasn't the, the street-savvy kid that I was made into be when I first started working for them. It, the only reason that I got away with it was because everyone down there knew who I was and that I grew up in that neighborhood. There wasn't many white kids running up to drug houses buying drugs back then in Detroit. By all accounts, Wershey's not a drug user. On the street, he's considered a small-time dealer who really is more of a hanger-on in the Curry organization. He's someone who is infatuated by the money, the women, the power that comes with the underworld of drug dealing. But he isn't powerful enough on his own to obtain any of the major spoils. But for a 15-year-old, Rick is rolling in dough. In the beginning, what were you doing with the money? I mean, you're 14 years old. What could you do with the money? Uh, I went shopping. I bought stuff. Gym shoes, uh, sweatsuits, jewelry, cars, stuff like that. By this time, Rick's friend Jimmy Locklear had moved to the nearby suburb of Warren with his family. Rick, he had a car, not a license, because he was just 15. But he'd drive out and see Jimmy. Well, he used to come come out to, to, and get his hair cut. My sister would cut his hair all the time. And I don't know, back then, you know, it was cool to have a little ponytail going down the back. So she hooked him all up with that. And then uh, I remember <laughs> my neighbors... At my mom's house, they had a, a little uh, puppy boxer. And he's like, oh, whose dog is that? And I'm like, that's my neighbor's, man. And I just looked at him. I said, don't steal it. <laughs> Next thing I know, the boxer's gone. <laughs> what so I called him and said, uh, I remember I called him. I said, hey, man, what the hell are you doing? You know, the, the neighbors know you took that damn dog. Bring that dog back. He's like, Jim, I'm not bringing that dog back. That's a nice dog. <laughs> It seemed like Rick's job afforded him not only new clothes, but also newfound confidence. What the people in his neighborhood don't realize is most of Rick's money is coming from law enforcement, money they're paying him to snitch on his new friends. His job as a secret informant is going better than anyone could have expected. Police arrive at the house on Ellesmere as part of a day-long drug sweep. Officers raiding well-known drug dens throughout the city. He is fearless buying drugs from dealers, which allows the cops to come back later with search warrants and raid the drug houses. Narcotics raids are extremely dangerous. Uh, the officers who do that work on a daily basis uh, are cognizant of the uh, danger that they're engaged in. The police look good for making lots of arrests. And Rick, he has thousands of dollars that he hides in a small box in his bedroom. Once the feds realize how much more valuable Rick Jr. is than his dad, they start dealing with the younger Worshi almost exclusively and paying him directly for his information. They're paying him so much money that Rick's dad thought he must have been dealing drugs. He did, and, and that was like... He thought I was selling drugs. Me and him got in an argument, and I ended up moving out. It, listen, I became the lifestyle that they had me living. I never had anything as a kid. 
Worsh said he, th he got over $35,000 in that year and a half from law enforcement. How does, how does it determine what, what a tip is worth? There? Well, it's, it's evaluated on, on the, for instance, the drugs, the size of the seizure, the number of uh, defendants that are uh, crime, uh, criminal cases that are uh, prosecuted. John Anthony is another FBI agent who worked on the Curry drug case. How, how do you evaluate like the the safety of somebody like that? You're using information with a kid. Uh, it's a dangerous world anyway. Obviously, the drug gangs are dangerous. The homicides are through the roof. How's that? Well, he's out there on his own. Uh, there's no doubt about it. We 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 were there as much as we could be. Uh, offered him advice and and what we knew what was going on, so he wouldn't fall into a trap anywhere. Uh, but it is, it's a dangerous world. The drug business is a dangerous world. That was one of the overriding concern we had with him was his age and his involvement with high-level drug dealers in Detroit. By the time he's 15, Rick is really well-liked by the Curry family, especially the boss, Johnny. That was all the clout Rick would ever need because nobody questions Johnny Curry. Yeah, I was like, I was an anomaly. I was the little white kid hanging out with him, you know? He stood out like a sore thumb. We, when we first met, we couldn't believe why would these African-American young teenagers and 20-year-olds, why would they deal with this kid? Well, he was very sharp, very smart, very streetwise. He just blended right in. Color didn't mean anything to these guys. It was the money that they were interested in and the movement of the drugs, and he was smart enough to know how to handle all that. Coming up in the next chapter. I was asking him to call 911. He wouldn't call 911. Uh, his girlfriend showed up, and I think she was the one that called 911. To be honest with you, she saved my life. On the way to the hospital, the ambulance driver told Rick, you're going to die. You know, I guess so he could say his last, last whatever prayer to who, who, whoever you want to pray to. Today's episode was produced by Zach Rosen and me. It was edited and mixed by Zach Rosen. Tad Davis is our assistant producer. WDIV's executive producer of special projects is Ro Coppola. WDIV's news director is Kim Vowett. My name is Kevin Dietz. Jerry Lemonu created original illustrations for each episode of this season. See them at whiteboyrick.show. If you like the podcast, consider writing a review for us in the Apple Podcast Store. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Shattered Podcast. Don't forget season one of Shattered, all about the missing Skelton Boys. It's available in this very feed. Thank you for listening.